From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. A major inquiry into Australia's productivity has just been released. It shows we have been performing poorly and it proposes rigorous prescriptions for improvement. The Productivity Commission's nine-volume report has a tough central message. It says productivity policy has to focus on the areas that have proven the hardest in the past, rather than those where previously progress has been most readily achieved. The report has a multiplicity of recommendations across the policy spectrum, from education and health, through workplace relations and migration, to harnessing data and technology. It points to the challenges of improving productivity in the public sector, and more generally, to the complexities now that we have become predominantly a service economy. Today we speak with Productivity Chair Michael Brennan. He was appointed to lead the Commission in 2018 by then-Treasurer Scott Morrison. He's a former senior Treasury official and was also a former staffer to a Liberal Federal Finance Minister and a Victorian Liberal Treasurer. Michael Brennan, before we get to some specific reforms that the Commission is recommending, let's talk about where Australia is in relation to productivity generally. Our productivity growth is low and the report says over the decade to 2020, average annual labour productivity growth in Australia was the slowest in 60 years. And we're faring poorly when it comes to comparable countries. Why is this and how serious is the problem? Well, Michelle, the problem is serious insofar as it affects the rate at which living standards will continue to improve. And so the time period in which, for example, living standards would double dramatically blows out from around 39 years to over 60 years. And I guess that's the question or the key question for the community is to what extent have we grown accustomed to a particular pace of change, a particular pace of improvement, as distinct from just a level of standard of living. It certainly poses an additional challenge for government because high productivity growth is one of the key ways that the fiscal arithmetic tends to add up over time and it's hard for governments to provide additional and new services to the community to a growing population without some productivity growth across the economy to fund it. Are we going more poorly than other comparable economies? Uh, Yes and no. In some ways over the last 30 years the Australian economy has performed remarkably well Um, and to some extent the slowing of productivity is a common affliction across the developed world. And to some extent, it may reflect that although it's the modern, the sort of conceit of every era, I I guess, to think that the pace of change has never been so fast and so rapid, uh, perhaps that's not necessarily true, that some of the key technological inventions of the latter part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, were pretty significant, pretty broadly based. And the sort of technological developments of more recent decades, including digital technologies, data, some of these things that we feel have transformed our lives, just perhaps haven't been of quite the same impact and broad base of impact as some of those technological improvements like electricity, uh, the internal combustion engine, antibiotics, air conditioning, you name it, all of those things that contributed to, if you like, the second industrial age. 
Now, you describe productivity improvement as the process by which people get more output from less input. But people will take this in different ways, won't they? Yeah, I think that's right. And in a way, in this project, we've attempted to go back to basics a bit. I think economists have a tendency to talk about productivity growth in slightly mechanical terms, to use expressions like capital deepening and multi-factor productivity, uh, and to talk about it as a broad economy-wide macro phenomenon. In some ways, what we've attempted to do is go more to the particulars and say what, what productivity growth really represents is all of the ways in which living standards improve, sometimes the dividend comes in the form of goods or, or services that become dramatically cheaper over time. For example, goods and services that require less time at the average wage to be able to afford. But often it's about quality. Uh, that's particularly true of services. So sometimes it'll be about, for example, the automobile. A car of today looks very different to what a car looked like in 1970. It's just a completely different product in terms of overall quality even if the cost, the real cost has, has only fallen a bit. And often it's about entirely new things, new innovations that, that come along that radically transform our lives. So, for example, in one of the supporting volumes, we talk a bit about everyday household items like a loaf of bread and ask how long would it take a worker at the average wage in 1901 to be able to afford a loaf of bread? And the answer is about 20 minutes. Compare that to today, about four minutes. And that's an illustration of the role of productivity growth over a long period in making everyday goods cheaper and more accessible. And of course, embedded in that is all of the productivity improvements that have happened on the farm, in the manufacturing plant where bread is being made or in the bakery that have translated into that real cost reduction over time. One of the challenges of improving productivity is this move that we've made to a predominantly service economy. The report points out that the service sector now employs nearly nine out of 10 people in the labour force and accounts for about 80% of economic output, figures that I think will surprise many people. But it's harder to achieve and indeed to measure productivity growth in many parts of this sector. So to what extent is the whole concept of productivity meaningful these days in relation to parts of this services sector. For example, in aged care, you'd want staff to spend more face time with patients, which could, however, be counter to increased productivity, couldn't it? Yes. So it, it remains meaningful. It remains very important. But I agree that it in some ways becomes a bit less intuitive. I think Productivity is a highly intuitive concept in some of the traditional goods industries, which, of course, if we rewind 70 years or so to the middle part of the 20th century, made up at least half of the economy. If you think about agriculture, manufacturing, mining, these are sectors where at the firm level, even for the individual worker, the concept of productivity, how much output are we getting for every unit of input, for every individual, uh, makes a lot of intuitive sense it probably makes a little less sense to an aged care worker. And I can understand why aged care workers and others in the modern services sector might be kind of pondering, well, what does this all really mean for us? The shift, I'll come to that, but the first thing to point out about the shift to services is that is a common trend across all developed economies, even economies we think of as being very sophisticated manufacturing economies such as Japan or Germany. The services sector is growing there relative to manufacturing. 
it is partly just a function of economies becoming richer. It's not something that we should seek to reverse. But it is also, perhaps interestingly, a function of where we see uneven productivity growth across the economy. So you see some sectors, such as agriculture, manufacturing, mining, which have achieved very dramatic productivity gains globally through the advancement of science, the introduction of machinery, all of the traditional ways that we think of often, uh, some labour being replaced a bit by capital, all those ways that we think of productivity being improved in those sectors. In the services sector, as you say, it's been harder to drive productivity growth. One of the consequences of that when you have those uneven rates of productivity growth is perhaps ironically, perhaps counterintuitively, it's the areas with the slower productivity growth that end up growing as a share of the overall economy. It's as though the economy as a whole spends less of its resources doing the things that have gotten easier and focuses more on the things that remain hard. And that can mean that that is a source of overall drag on economy-wide productivity growth because the bits of the economy where productivity growth has been hardest to achieve are growing as an overall share and that's part of the reason why the key theme of this report is we can't just look at the areas that have been traditionally conducive to rapid productivity growth. We have to look at the areas which have traditionally been a bit harder. And that's why productivity growth in the services sector remains an ongoing challenge. I'll just make one more quick observation about it. And this goes to the previous question about what's the dividend? Is the dividend always going to be reduced cost? Or in some cases, will the dividend be higher quality? If you go back to that thought experiment I did about how long does it take you to afford a loaf of bread, for example, in 1901 versus the modern day, time taken to afford a loaf of bread has come down a long way. That's been the dividend in relation to a loaf of bread has been a cost reduction. If you think about a service like a half hour consultation with a general practitioner, for example, then it's less clear that the real cost of that has fallen because, of course, if I'm on the average wage and the doctor's on some multiple of the average wage, well, it's just going to cost me, whether it's in 1901 or 2023, uh, some multiple of my wage to go and see the doctor for, for half an hour or 45 minutes. The difference is that the quality of that consultation has, has changed immeasurably because the doctor of today can prescribe drugs, can send me off for all manner of advanced pathology testing just can tell me much more about my health. And sometimes that's the point about productivity growth, perhaps particularly in services. It's the quality dimension on which the dividend is going to be gained, not so much on the cost dimension. Let's now then turn to some of the detail of the recommendations in the report. To start with education, where we seem to have been, if anything, falling behind other countries, at least at the schools level, despite considerable spending on the sector and increased spending. What are some of the most important reforms that the Commission's proposing here? It is fundamental, and we've probably spent more time and effort on education in this report than perhaps many might expect. It's a very central element of it. Part of it goes back to that question that I just raised before about the shift to services. One feature of those sectors like agriculture and manufacturing was that they provided pretty high-paying jobs to people with limited formal education, people who left school well before year 12 in many cases. The modern services economy is much less forgiving in that respect. There, there are low-skilled jobs, but they tend to be low-paying jobs. 
there is a much higher premium on formal qualifications. And in fact, it's now estimated that nine out of the 10 new jobs being created in the economy require some form of post-school qualification. So the premium on education is rising. As an overall economy, we have in the past gained a productivity dividend from the rise in educational attainment in terms of additional years of schooling, people spending longer in school. But that's largely reached a plateau at very high levels. And so increasingly, the dividend is going to have to come from quality. So how do we think about quality in the education system? One way of thinking about it is do the thought experiment. Could education achieve the sort of transformation that, for example, the health sector achieved over the last 150 years, where life expectancies rose from 40-something up to about 80 for a male these days? Could education achieve that kind of transformation in terms of students gaining much stronger cognitive capability coming out of their schooling? If we're to achieve that, we think there are three broad areas. One is the role of digital technologies. That is a game changer. And it's already, we see, coming into the classroom much more than in the past. Children learning mathematics, you're uh, using software in ways that are guided by data analytics and algorithms to identify where students might be struggling with a particular concept, directing them in, in areas to try and explain things to them more effectively. So we think technology and the adoption of technology in the classroom is going to be critical. A second area is just stronger evidence-based classroom materials for teachers. One aspect of the Australian system is that we provide a lot of autonomy to teachers, define the curriculum pretty broadly and leave a lot to teachers to determine about how various concepts are imparted, how lessons are taught in the school. That can result in a very significant burden on teachers' time uh, and a lot of variability in classroom practice. So having more evidence-based, high-quality materials for teachers to use, I think, is a, a significant potential area of gain. And the third is just to encourage a bit of a culture of innovation in education itself in the way we configure it, noting that this, the broad structure of schooling hasn't changed a lot in the last 50, 70 years or thereabouts. Should we just experiment a bit with some of the structures of schooling, school hours, the way students advance through age-based or stage-based advancement, various governance arrangements, et cetera. I think just a spirit of a bit of disruption, a bit of entrepreneurship there can make a difference. Turning to migration, this can be one of the stronger drivers of productivity. What changes are needed? So migration for Australia, is a, it's a big asset because we do have the capacity to bring skilled workers into the economy. And that's an important area of comparative advantage for Australia that not every developed economy has to the same extent. But it's not costless and it's not infinite. So inevitably, in the skilled migration program, you have to ration on some basis and at the moment, we tend to ration on the basis of lists, priority lists of skilled occupations that are deemed to be in short supply. And I, I think there are two problems with that. One, that it is very difficult for those government-determined lists to remain up to date. And that's a common complaint that you hear from employers in the business community. I think a second challenge is it has a tendency to be influenced by lobbying to get particular occupations on the list. So we do favour something that's a little more cleaner, I guess a little more market-based, like an income threshold for the skilled migration program, both temporary and permanent, uh, the employer-sponsored bit of the permanent migration. 
such that it's really about what's the sort of value that a migrant might be bringing to the Australian economy. And the wage is a pretty good proxy for the sort of broader benefits that a would-be skilled migrant might bring to the economy and the workforce. So that would favour high, higher wage occupations? In, in the migration intake, that's right. It would actually, in terms of the impact on the domestic labour market, it probably means more competition for higher income earners and less focused on, on lower income earners. So whilst it's hard to say exactly what the impact would be on the overall wage distribution, it probably operates to, to compress the wage distribution, not, not to widen it. Yet we do need uh, some low-income occupations to be boosted, don't we, like aged care? Yes, and we've certainly left open the idea that in some targeted areas, particularly those areas where we don't have market mechanisms raising wages in quite the same way as we might do in the private sector. So, for example, in the care economy, wages might be constrained somewhat by government funding arrangements, and therefore it's difficult for wages to rise above that threshold, as you might expect them to do in a normal market. And perhaps it's arguable there that you might need some special arrangement that was particularly targeted, maybe it's time limited or subject to ongoing review. So it's not that we're not open to the fact that there will be instances where you may need some flexibility, some tweaking of what would otherwise be that income threshold. But we feel that you could do that via a fairly targeted and well-defined means and still get the benefits of something that's moving away from the current skill lists uh, approach. Now, your proposals in the area of workplace reform involve a good deal of deregulation. With a Labor government federally and a strengthened union voice these days, won't these simply encounter a great deal of pushback? And what would you say to those critics? I think that workplace relations regulation is always a balance. You're trying to define robust well understood well enforced minimums in minima in terms of pay leave and other core conditions and then providing firms workers and employers with the flexibility to devise arrangements that suit themselves above those minima and those things are really important and i don't think cutting the minimum conditions cutting minimum wages anything like that is really a priority it's not really required what we are talking about, though, is identifying where in the system we could expand the flexibility for individual firms to arrive at arrangements that, that suit them. And the broad thrust of policy in this area over the last 30 years has been about the movement from awards into enterprise bargaining, that firm-based enterprise bargaining um, would unleash some, some firm-based productivity gains, and it has. Um, that has plateaued. And to some extent, there's been a bit of a retreat back into the award system, in part because enterprise agreements are difficult to strike. They, they can be um, complex in, in terms of the kind of red tape associated with making an enterprise agreement. They can be a pretty complex and demanding endeavour. And part of our insight here is to say perhaps we need to refocus a little bit and go back to a bit of focus on the award system itself. Where could we provide a bit of flexibility in the awards? And interestingly, part of that involves giving actually a more prominent role to the Fair Work Commission as the entity that is the overseer, the custodian of the award system. 
And what's the role for the Fair Work Commission to basically provide a few more options and flexibilities for businesses in relation to those awards? So one of the interesting things that happened in the last couple of years was with the Hospitality Award, where the Fair Work Commission basically provided a loaded rates option to employers and, and workers. So this was a schedule to the award. It's entirely optional to say for a full-time employee, you could, if you wished, cash out the existing penalty rates into higher overall hourly rates. If you followed this sort of formula, that's an option for you. And I think that sort of menu-based approach actually has a lot to commend it. It's not um, compulsory. It's providing additional flexibilities, but it's doing it via the award system rather than expecting that a lot of firms, including small employers, are going to make use of the formal enterprise bargaining arrangements themselves. You spoke earlier about improvements in health. What scope do you see for increasing productivity now in this area? Well, I think it's substantial. I think there is a lot of scope for improvements in overall productivity in the health sector, noting my earlier comment about often it'll be quality rather than cost reduction. To go back on that sort of historical analogy, you know, thinking about agriculture in the 20th century, it's really notable. Once upon a time, agriculture was our biggest employer. Uh, it employed 25% of the workforce at the turn of the 20th century. And today it's much less than that. It's sort of around less than 5%, but we're producing vastly more food and fibre and, and agricultural output because of the productivity dividend. And so part of what productivity growth did in that sector was, if you like, to free up a lot of labour. It's part of the reason the services sector has grown in terms of employment, because we're employing fewer people in areas like agriculture, notwithstanding that we're producing more. Now, it's an interesting thought experiment to say, well, in the 21st century, who's going to do that? Is, is I mean, health and social assistance is now our largest employer. So is it going to follow the path of agriculture? Is that what we're going to see over the next 100 years that we dramatically shrink the workforce in this area, but people are going to be a lot healthier. And it's not impossible, but it's hard to imagine. And it's more likely that in health, the dividend comes in the form of quality. And what does quality look like in health? Well, it comes in the form of higher life expectancy, more life lived in good health, um, the sort of dividend that we have seen coming over the last 100 years or so. I think the challenge in health is that the the sector, and this is true across the world, has proven highly innovative, highly technologically sophisticated on one dimension, namely when it comes to what you might call molecular innovation. If it's new drugs, new diagnostic techniques, new pathology, you know, new radiology, et cetera, new kit, new medical technology, I think it's an unbelievably innovative sector. It's a much less innovative sector when it comes to the use of general technology to improve the service offering. So, you know, the famous kind of caricature is you might go to the GP and you're being referred off for all manner of complex and advanced, you know, pathology tests using impressive hit and all that. And the referral happens via a fax. And there's something kind of stark about that disconnect. And I think the challenge in the health sector is how is it that we are going to help the sector and encourage the sector to reform the, the service bit as distinct from these other technologically advanced bits that inevitably will come into to the process of, of healthcare. I think part of this is about funding models, and there's been a bit of advance on this. We, we have funding models that tend to lock in a particular configuration of service delivery, like a half hour or 45 minute consultation with a medical practitioner or in hospitals, an activity-based funding uh, arrangement that's very much based on, on throughput, on volume, on activity. 
as distinct from outcomes. Uh, there is reform underway in these areas, trying to look at more blended funding models. But I think that's a critical enabler. Just in areas like mental health, for example, there are huge advances already on the table in terms of providing these supported, moderated online treatments, the ability of uh, clinicians to ration their time a bit by supporting multiple clients, multiple uh, consumers um, with a bit of time, but supplemented by other online products and obviously accessible at times and in ways that are convenient to individual consumers. That strikes me as going to be a very important part of health moving forward, but we have to ensure that we have funding models and regulatory arrangements that basically facilitate that. Um, a couple of other areas that we've talked about in the report are trying to minimise or reduce the extent of clinical variation. It's still remarkable how much clinical variation there is in terms of the operations that are done, the procedures that are, that are done, not necessarily always based on the best clinical evidence, and also scope of practice issues. It's still a case that we kind of allow uh, or, or don't allow all people in the health system, including nurses, including pharmacists, including some allied health practitioners to work to the full scope of practice. Sometimes we're relying too much on even more highly skilled people to undertake tasks that could actually be done by somebody with a lower formal qualification. And I think many consumers would uh, think that among uh, improvements that have been made and are foreshadowed, you've still got the problem of people spending hours and hours in emergency departments, ambulance ramping, and the inability to get a doctor to their house for level money. I think that's right. And some of that is a strain that we've seen on the system, particularly post-COVID. Some of it is a reflection of the fact that we are perhaps channeling people into relatively high cost care settings, including the acute care setting, the hospital, even the GP waiting room. In our previous uh, report on productivity shifting the dial, we calculated that there was nearly a billion dollars or so of time wasted sitting in the GP's waiting room. Well, of course, you can get around that with telehealth. That's a classic illustration, both of an inefficiency, but also a cultural issue uh, in this particular industry. Very few service industries around where the concept of a waiting room uh, would really apply. Now, on climate change, you recommend a more radical path for getting to net zero. Can you outline this and is it practicable in economic terms? So we, we see climate and climate policy and decarbonising the economy as a significant productivity challenge and one that fits squarely in a, a productivity review. So we've given it a a deal of prominence in this five-yearly iteration. The key mechanism being negotiated as we speak is the safeguard mechanism, which is a very important element in the policy framework for reducing emissions over the next 30 years. What we're proposing is that over time, that sort of mechanism could evolve by increment. It could capture more facilities, it could capture more sectors, because at the moment it doesn't really cover the transport sector except for very, very large emitters, and it doesn't really cover the energy sector except at a global level, and the energy sector is generally going to be below the safeguard threshold. So we see mechanisms by which that, or a path by which that safeguard mechanism could evolve over time. Is it practicable in economic terms? I think it is. I acknowledge that even getting the existing safeguard mechanism uh, legislated is a significant challenge. So, of course, I acknowledge that there are political constraints on that. But in economic terms, no, I think it's it's absolutely practical to to be thinking about how that mechanism could then evolve into the future. 
I was interested in your recommendation to refocus innovation policy towards spreading new ideas to businesses that are not themselves going to be innovators. Can you just expand on that? Yes, I think one of the key themes that we wanted to highlight in this report was, and it's kind of consistent with that general message about looking in the hard areas rather than the easy areas, or not necessarily thinking that future productivity growth will always follow the same well-worn channels that it has in the past. There are some well-worn channels when we think about innovation policy. I think the mind naturally turns to levers like the research and development tax concession or the policies that apply to intellectual property like patenting or how we might commercialise the research that's going on in universities and that sort of thing. And all of those policies are important. It's important to have those policy settings right. But when you look at where those efforts are really directed, they do tend to be particularly uh, relevant to and, and salient in some of these traditional sectors like agriculture and manufacturing. That's where R&D is particularly strong. Most of the services sector not really doing a lot of formal R&D. Most of the innovation that goes on in services isn't necessarily patentable. Um, it's just of a different form. And so we've been turning our mind a bit to what does innovation policy really need to look like in a changing economy? And it's notable for Australia that only 2% of Australian firms are really introducing genuine new to the world innovation, perhaps not surprisingly. It's the 98% who are the incremental adopters of other technology, adapters, uh, just the, the kind of daily improvers of, of what they do. But it occurred to us, and it seems to us, that that's the main game in terms of lifting productivity. It's those incremental gains across the broad mass of firms. Now, there's not a single policy lever that's kind of really, you pull it and, you know, you get that sort of diffusion of technology and innovation across those adapters and adopters. But a few things struck us as particularly important, the take up of digital technologies by small businesses, the use of data and, and data analytics, which is pretty patchy in Australia. Australia does pretty well on adoption of cloud computing, does pretty well on uh, the extent of data downloads, on internet connections and, and basic online commerce, much less so in some of the more sophisticated uses like data analytics, artificial intelligence. So we did turn our minds a bit to what are some of the, the mechanisms that government has as, as its disposal. And some of those are going to be about the government's own policies on data. It's going to be about the infrastructure provision around broadband internet. Some of it will be about skills. Some of it will be about what government does in its own patch in terms of having sophisticated approaches to technology in its in, among regulators, for example, some of these reg tech solutions that individual reg regulators can really prompt and sponsor. Uh, so for on a range of fronts, we just thought that that was, that was where the main game on innovation really sits. You mentioned uh, the Productivity Commission's last major report in 2017, shifting the dial, which essentially fell on deaf ears. And already Jim Chalmers has indicated the government won't implement some of this report's recommendations. Is the Productivity Commission unrealistic in what it puts forward? Or is it, is it that reform has just become too hard because the public now suffers from reform fatigue or there is such strong resistance from various vested interests? Um, you, you know, Michelle, in general... I'm maybe unfashionably 
positive on these issues. I acknowledge that often in the productivity debate or in the economic debate in general, it's easy for a sort of negative trope to creep in and run through it that we often hear that, you know, the public sector capability isn't there or the politicians aren't interested or aren't up to it or uh, the public won't accept various reforms or various changes and that somehow this is a lot worse than it's been in the past. I am much more optimistic than that. I, I don't really feel that any of those things are true. I, I think that by any objective standard, Australia is a very well-governed polity and, you know, we produce strong public sector policymakers, good politicians and a public that is quite open, in my view, to cogent argument. I acknowledge the point about vested interests. I think that is a potential break at times. But part of the antidote to that is institutions like us. I mean, we trace our lineage or our antecedents back, for example, to the Tariff Board and, and then the Industry Commission. And part of the logic of organisations like ours is that we can by virtue of a bit of independence, a bit of transparency, we can provide some evidence, some judgment, put some facts on the table in a way that's fairly transparent, that's three of the constraints of having to appeal to vested interests, uh, and that that's a, you know, a pretty good sort of corrective to the tendency of, of vested interests to influence uh, policy. Of course, part of that is, you know, yes, we enjoy independence. We're given time to look at issues in in some degree of detail. It allows us to put forward a view uh, based on our read of the evidence and our judgment. And I guess the whole point is in part that we are unencumbered by many of the constraints that governments inevitably face. And they will face political constraints. They face bandwidth constraints. They just have to ration the number of things that they can tackle. And of course, there will be individual issues, to your point, that the government sort of disagrees with. And that's true of many other stakeholders. They'll disagree with with individual bits. Um, that doesn't bother me particularly. I think it's important for us to nonetheless put views, be influential in the debate. Partly that'll be about individual recommendations, and it's partly about how we might shape the debate going forward. Um, encouraging policymakers to think a little bit differently about some of the key issues. I think shifting the dial, for example, was pretty influential, maybe more influential than is sometimes acknowledged in terms of reshaping the debate. It broke new ground in some areas like health policy, in some areas like cities, uh, the workings of the Federation, etc. And in some ways, kind of preempted some of the issues that became very salient during the COVID pandemic. So I'd argue, in a way, kind of ahead of its time in, in some dimensions. Well, on that optimistic note, thank you very much for talking with us, uh, Michael Brennan. And that's our podcast for today. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosebeer. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.